All righty. <clears throat> if you can turn to First Peter chapter one, that's where we are. Um, we're only going to cover verses three through five, but um, I want you to note some of the repeated words that show up in the, the larger passage, uh, since those are kind of important words. Um, also, what's interesting is the ver- great similarities between Ephesians 1 and here in 1 Peter 1. Uh, they start off with almost, with actually identical words, um, but also uh, they're very similar in that um, verses 3 through 12 here are actually one long sentence. And the translators had mercy upon our souls by putting them into a series of smaller sentences to uh, aid in our capacity to understand them. So uh, here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, uh, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Well, we'll stop there. I actually read a couple verses too many. Let's pray. Father, According to the riches of your glory, uh, grant that we would be strengthened with the power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may indeed dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, and that we may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. And so accomplish this in part through the reading and preaching of your word this morning. Amen. Here's hoping it's the last sip I take this morning. Anyway. There is a particular episode in Seinfeld where George is uh, discussing his relationships and his overall theory of relationships. And he talks about the reality of who has what he calls hand. His shorthand for the upper hand. 
And in George's uh, theory, it very you know, remember this is George Costanza, so it's a twisted theory of relationships. Um, in his theory of relationships, the person who has, has the lesser amount of commitment is the person who has hand. They have power in the relationship. They control where the relationship is going. As we think about relationships, even from a godly perspective, we recognize uh, that commitment is always there. The question of commitment is always there. As you younger people who have not yet uh, gotten married will find, hopefully, uh, that um, finding a spouse is not just about finding someone you enjoy being with, or that you find to be hot. But it's also about finding someone who is at least as committed to you as they are committed to themselves. If they're not committed to you, but are committed more to themselves, that does not bode well long term. Even as we think about our faith in Jesus Christ, and the call to commitment that, that Peter is going to issue later on in this letter, he starts, I believe, with talking about God's commitment to this group of people. Because they need to know that he is fully committed to them so that they will be able to commit themselves to him. If they don't have that sense of God's commitment, that knowledge of God's commitment, they will be tempted to shrink back in the face of the obstacles of, that they are experiencing, even as we read from the extended portion of this text this morning. And so as I think about this text, the big idea this morning is rejoice, because God has revealed His total commitment to us. And we're going to look at this in three ways this morning. The fullness of his commitment to us. This is similar, this passage here, as I mentioned already, is similar to Paul's outburst in Ephesians chapter 1. It's also uh, identical to the beginning of his, his outburst in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, because it begins with those words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that actually is an interesting sort of translation because blessed looks like a verb there when we read it. But actually, blessed is an adjective. And so basically it means God the Father is blessed, is, is praised, praiseworthy. He's experiencing these things. So what is causing this outbreak, this outburst, of praise for Peter here in this text, but also think about what's going on for Paul as well when he has this outburst himself. But before we talk about what he's excited about, we ought to think about why is he, you know, how is it that he's excited? Did he just spontaneously burst out with these words of praise to God? No. These, I think, were in some sense hard-earned words. Okay? 
Yes, the Holy Spirit is producing them in him. Okay, and so uh, th there's that aspect to it. But I believe as well, there are the means that the Holy Spirit uses in order to produce this kind of joy that bursts forth seemingly spontaneously. That is, I believe, they were meditating upon these very things. They were meditating upon, they're, they're turning over in their minds the greatness of their sin and therefore the greatness of God's salvation and therefore they burst forth with this joyful exclamation that they experience. We won't have the joy, in other words, unless we're thinking about these things. Unless we're spending time turning them over in our minds like the cow chews on the cud, we will not experience this joy. We will not have these seemingly spontaneous outbursts of praise. Rather, we will be consumed by our fears and our doubts. So, what causes this outburst? Peter goes directly to, according to his great mercy the fullness of mercy. And a phrase that is reminiscent of Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 when he declares that God is rich in mercy. And this week during uh, BSF night, you know, studies with the kids, it was talked about, how have you seen God is infinite this week? Which I thought was kind of not so good of a question. Okay? <clears throat> but we, it, it goes into the, what does it mean to be infinite? To be without limit. And one of the things that God possesses, so to speak, without limit within his character is mercy. And we saw this as God declared his name in uh, Exodus 33 and 34 uh, you know, to Moses upon the mountain, the God who is merciful. And so he's infinite in his mercy because all that he has, he has an infinite Quantities, if we can even use that word with the concept of infinity. It goes beyond that. There's no limit to his power. There's no limit to his knowledge. There's no limit to his wisdom. And there's no limit to his mercies. So, it's important for us to reckon with that because he is also just as we saw in that very same reading from uh, Exodus. He is, as we see in Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, a consuming fire, a jealous God. So on the one hand, we have the righteousness, holiness, justice of God in which he is seen to be a consuming fire. And don't think that's an Old Testament deal because in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews reminds us that our God is a consuming fire in verse 29. And so He's still righteous. He's still holy. He's still a consuming fire. And we are sinners. We are in danger of the consuming fire that is God in His wrath unless we partake of His mercies. 
And that is the wonder that we find in Lamentations chapter 3. Um, the ESV translates one of the phrases differently in a, because I've got it in, in uh, NIV in my head. Okay? It is because of His mercies that we are not consumed. See, that's what I like about it. It connects God as a consuming fire. It's, it's because of His mercy that we are not destroyed because of our unrighteousness, but instead... He shows His mercies new every morning. But Peter starts off with what I will call, last week we talked about the waves of grace and peace that came, like the waves upon the seashore, never ending, they're always there. Well, here's a tsunami of grace, so to speak. A tsunami, a giant tidal wave of God's mercy that does not destroy us like we think of with tidal waves, but in fact gives us life. He hears our cries of mercy, of misery rather. He hears our cries of guilt. He hears our cries of fear. He hears our cries of doubt. He's moved to do something. And in this tsunami of mercy, he has caused us, Peter says, to be born again. That he responds to the deadness that we have in, in our sin and trespasses which, you know, I'm borrowing here from Ephesians chapter 2 because Peter doesn't get there just quite yet, okay? But he responds to this deadness we have by giving us life, a newness of life, causing us to be born again. Now, what's unusual is that this idea of regeneration is found in a number of places in the Scriptures, but this word that is used here by Peter is only used one other time, and it's later on in this very same passage. Ow, hurt myself. Okay. <clears throat> and so it's a unique word, so to speak, in how, in how uh, Peter uses it. But he brings the dead people to life. And we see this connection with mercy and, and newness of life, regeneration, not just in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, which is almost identical, <coughs> but also in Titus chapter 3, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so God the Father has given us spiritual life which reveals His eternal commitment to His people. Because I will ask you, unless you come from an incredibly dysfunctional home, which is possible, but for the ordinary person, who is the most committed person to them? Who's, the, who's most committed to you if they're still alive? Your parents, right? The ones who gave you life have the most invested in you. They have poured their love into you. They have fed you. They have clothed you. They have hopefully disciplined you. Okay? They've paid for education, all of these things. They have made an investment in you, a commitment to you that does not end the moment you leave the house because you're 18. From an earthly perspective, until you get married, perhaps, there is no one who has as committed to you as the people who gave you life. And so I, 
as I think about this passage, we're reminded there, there can be no one who is as spiritually committed to you as God the Father who gave you life. There is no pastor, there is no friend who is going to be as committed to you as God is committed to you. He gave you life and life abundant. This could be called uh, historical grace. It's a phrase I came across in studying for community group this week. Okay, because it's something that's received in the past that they were to call to mind, just as Peter himself has called this to mind. But this, this, this giving of life, this being born again, he says, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so again there, it parallels what we see in Ephesians chapter 2, because we were made alive with Christ or in union with Jesus Christ, such that just as his death we died, so in his life, his resurrection, we're made anew to walk in newness of life. And so both Paul and Peter bring us back to this idea of union with Christ to experience the great blessings of God in Jesus Christ. And one of these is life from the dead. Jesus, who was physically dead, was raised from the dead. And so through his death and resurrection, God has rescued us in order to continue to reveal his commitment to his people. Now let's think about that for a moment. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, Peter reminds us. And so as a suffering people who faced the prospect, perhaps, of death through persecution, they were to know that death is no obstacle to God. That death does not reveal the end of his commitment to them because the Father continued his commitment to Jesus and raised him from the dead. And of course, we too will one day be raised from the dead. And so perhaps you're not experiencing uh, persecution, but you're experiencing profound illness. You're experiencing profound fear about something. Your circumstances are really desperate in some particular way. Remember that that circumstance is not greater than God who can raise Jesus from the dead. So, they were born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but they were also born again to a living hope. You see, on uh, what we call Good Friday, or depending on your theological perspective, it could be Monday, Thursday, um, with Pastor Stu, your, Peter's hopes died when Jesus died on the cross. He wasn't anticipating the resurrection. Jesus had told him about the resurrection, but he didn't, it didn't click. The penny, the, the coin didn't drop for him with regard to the resurrection. He thought it was all over along with the other disciples. Their hope was dead. 
But when Jesus rose, his hope was reborn. His hope continued. And so we have a living hope. Our hope is, as Calvin notes, the hope of eternal life. A hope that suffering cannot extinguish. A steady hope in a world full of death and decay. And so the Father, first of all, reveals His commitment to us by making us alive in Christ Jesus to this living hope. Secondly, He is committed to keeping our inheritance secure. This goes further into this idea of what this living hope is, and Peter portrays this living hope as an inheritance. I am the executor of my parents' estate. I'm not sure when I'm going to do my work. I'm hoping my dad will be around for a while. But I know, essentially, what I'm going to inherit. And some of you have inherited money when your parents passed. You have inherited homes, cars, land. Some of it you're trying to get rid of. (laughs) So you can have money, okay? I know one man who was supposed to receive an inheritance of his father's guns. But his sibling took them. There was bad blood there. Um, (laughs) Okay, but we're used to the concept of inheritance and our heavenly father by nature of regeneration. Okay, that's why he's our father and in Paul uh, Peter's thinking, okay, is committed not just to our in our past, but he's committed to our future. And to prove it, he's provided an inheritance that awaits us. In other words, our heavenly father is a good dad. He's not a deadbeat dad. So he cares for our future as well. I've, I don't know if I'm going to leave much to my kids, but I do know that I have life insurance. So if something happens to me before I hit, I think it's 67, um, they're okay. Amy's okay and the kids are okay. I'm worth more dead than alive right now. <laughs> So, <coughs> anyway, that will be their inheritance. Unless I die later, then they get almost nothing. You know, I'm a pastor. You know. But in speaking about this inheritance, Peter piles up three adjectives to, to describe this inheritance. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. He wants us to know how secure that inheritance is. And we're, we're, you know, we, we talk about imperishable and perishable things all the time. Certain foods are perishable items, meaning they will rot if you have them in the, uh, in the, the pantry or even in the refrigerator. They will inevitably rot. And so, you know, we've, we've unfortunately had the experience coming home from vacation going, what's that? And inevitably, it's something that's uh, either uh, an onion or a potato that's in the bin in the pantry that has decided to rot. Okay? And so this inheritance does not decay, it does not die, it does not perish, but it is secure in that fashion. Not only that, it is undefiled. 
I wasn't too excited about uh, how the NASB translated that mark when it, from, a, from uh, Isaiah 24, because it talked about unpolluted. In the ESV, it translates that, that word undefi- uh, sorry, defiled. The inheritance of Israel, the land, among the many things, that's why we have that in there, is that it became defiled by sin. Okay, Their sin caused the land, not just the people themselves, the land to be unclean, to be polluted. Okay, uh, and, and some of us are familiar with toxic waste dumps. So I, I saw something that referred back to the Love Canal. That was one of the famous toxic waste dumps in American history. Um, our inheritance is not made toxic or defiled, even though we continue to sin. And in fact, it's, the third one is that it is unfading. We've all had things that have faded. Our favorite shirt eventually fades. Um, if we keep money or letters from our loved ones, they eventually fade because the sun gets at it. That's why great paintings aren't allowed to be in the sunlight, okay? Because what does sun do to paint turning bare? It fades it, right? Given enough time. This is unfading. The glory of this inheritance will not diminish over time, but will continue to burn brightly on our behalf. It's a sense of almost a steady beacon. So we see from Isaiah 24 that this land that was supposed to be their inheritance because of their disobedience was made desolate, it was withered, it was defiled, its glory or prosperity was gone, and it was useless for a time. We see in Matthew 6 as well, Jesus is talking about earthly treasures versus heavenly treasures. And he talks about how earthly treasures can be devoured by moths or rust. They're perishable. They can be stolen by thieves. And so earthly treasures are vulnerable to the vagaries of life. And while I may get my financial inheritance, I am not sure what inflation will do to it. But our heavenly inheritance is secure from all of those things. It shall not be diminished. It is invulnerable to sin and corruption. It is invulnerable to attack or theft, rot, decay. Peter continues and says that this inheritance is kept for you. Okay, there's a shift that takes place, if you didn't notice it. Because before he was saying, we, we, we. Peter's in there with everybody else. But for some reason, he now switches to you. It's kept for you, brothers and sisters, he says. It is kept for you in heaven. By God Himself. Probably the best way for us to think about this is, is maybe Fort Knox. Okay, uh, aside from the James Bond movie, um, Fort Knox has not been robbed. <laughs> 
things there are secure there. You can't get in and steal them away. And our inheritance is like that. It is kept by God. It's as if it's in the most secure place on earth because it is in the most secure place, although that place is in heaven. And so you and I can rest secure in the knowledge of this inheritance. Remember, it's an inheritance. It's not a wage that we've earned. It's something we receive by the goodness of the Father because He has gained it for us through His Son. And so uh, knowing this should encourage again these troubled Christians because many of these Christians here you know, in Turkey... Northern Turkey had experienced a loss of status. They may have lost their jobs. Some have lost their freedom, their wealth. And so they're wondering, what can I bank on? And Peter reminds them that they can bank on this inheritance. As I prayed earlier, one of my friends, Rowdy, was in an accident this week. They're not sure if he's going to be paralyzed or not. And, you know, as you think about the fears that can come over your heart as you lay in the ICU, I know my own heart would be struggling at this point in time. It's contemplating things like our unchanging inheritance that sustain somebody that can get them to have a joy even in the midst of distress. Because he knows that his, his relationship and his status before God are unchanging. Even though his earthly circumstances have taken a turn for the worse. There is a floor that can never be taken away from him. There is a treasure that can never be taken away from him. We can lose the person we love most in this world. We can lose our jobs. But we cannot lose our eternal inheritance. And so the Father reveals His future commitment to us by keeping our inheritance secure. Thirdly, He is committed to guard us by His power until this salvation is revealed. There's a question that that should arise as we think about this. Our, Our inheritance is secure, but are we secure? For instance, I could talk to my wife and she could say, Oh, dinner is ready, dear. It's time to come home. She doesn't do that, by the way. I mean, I know when dinner usually is and I'm home already. But uh, will I get home? Sometimes it's a little tricky out there in the roads of Tucson. Okay, as Melissa discovered yesterday. He speaks of them who by God's power, are being guarded. And so we see an ongoing commitment in the present to our safety. 
Okay, they are being guarded. Not they have been guarded, they will be guarded, but the idea is present tense. They're being guarded now, and they're going to continue to be guarded. God will guard them by His power. Okay, the, the God who you know has that infinite power we talked about a little bit earlier. That the idea here, of course, is that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will exhibit that very same power in order to guard us. We see this idea in Ephesians chapter 1. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And so the same power that not only raised Jesus from the dead, but also um, made Him ascended and seated Him at God's right hand, that is the power that is at work in us and also at work for us. We see this word guard used as well in uh, 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, At Damascus, the governor under King Arteus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And that was a negative sense. This king was guarding to to gather um, Paul in his net. Okay, But here instead we see that God is guarding us to keep us secure. It's as if... Um, <coughs> we have our own secret service squad team protecting us. That doesn't mean bad things don't happen, like getting in an accident and dislocating your thumb and, or you know, breaking your leg and your wrist. Those things happen. This is not about um, the idea that you'll never stub your toe and never get hurt. But you will. But the idea is that you, God will protect and preserve you so that you will receive your inheritance. Okay? Um, this is not a, a healthy, wealthy kind of thing that we see going on here. And so in a sense, what we see is that this mercy keeps coming. There was that initial tsunami of mercy, but the waves keep coming as we need them to preserve us in easy times and in difficult times. And so usually on a peaceful day, if you're at the beach, even at high tide, the waves are not that big. But in a storm, those waves are huge. And so in the storms of your life, those waves of mercy are bigger because you need more mercy. And the good news is, is they can never be exhausted. But Peter here also calls us to entrust ourselves to him because he says that we are guarded by faith. This is the first sign of our commitment to God. Remember, I love that definition by Packer, that faith is self-abandoning trust in in the person and work of Christ. But I love what Calvin says when he also says that faith penetrates heaven to gain the blessings of Christ. 
And so faith is the means by which we appropriate this mercy that comes to us. Faith is the means by which we, we appropriate His power to protect us. And so we're not utterly passive in all of this, but we are called to trust Him in order to receive that protection that comes from God. And so we see through the emphasis on faith within this first chapter and the rest of the letter that for Peter, the Christian life is one of faith, one in which we continue to entrust ourselves to God. This week I was reading some Sinclair Ferguson, and he talked about um, his first position in a church. Okay, he was an assistant pastor. And so one day the pastor was preaching and he said, it was a rather undynamic illustration, and yet here I do, I remember it all these years later. He says, the Christian life is like riding a bicycle. If you stop pedaling, you're inevitably going to fall over. Now, we have hills here, and so we know that we can stop pedaling and we can glide for a little while. You know, and so, you know, your life doesn't immediately fall apart, so to speak. Okay, you can still look like a Christian for a while when you stop trusting, but eventually you're going to topple. So there's the call to continue to entrust ourselves. That's the entirety of the Christian life is entrusting ourselves into the hands of God because He has already committed Himself to us. And so we are guarded <clears throat> for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so we're guarded, and, and as, again, he qualifies this for salvation. They were experiencing persecution. And so this guarding doesn't mean you never get touched by persecution, but you're guarded for salvation. Our salvation is ready. It has been prepared, and it's going to be uncovered, but in the future is when it's going to be revealed. It's the last time. It's not yet revealed, Peter is saying to them. Now, let's pause for a second. It is revealed presently through the preaching of the Word, just as we, we kind of saw there in verses 10 and 11 that the, the prophets spoke something about this salvation, okay? They revealed something about this salvation. And so it, it's revealed to us, okay? But it has not yet been revealed to the whole world as being something that is true. They might hear about it and scoff at it. But when... When Jesus returns, they will know that the Lord is God, and they will bend the knee and say that Jesus Christ is Lord, even though they hate him for it. And so while right now we walk by faith, then we will walk by sight. But we're not there yet. So these struggling communities of Christians that Peter is writing to, uh, like us in many ways, <clears throat> needed to remember God's commitment to them in order to remain committed to Him. 
His past commitment is seen in regeneration, giving us life through Christ's resurrection. His future commitment is to us is seen in reserving an inheritance for us. And this inheritance will not suffer loss or destruction, but it's kept safe for us. His present commitment to us is seen in guarding us by His great power. In other words, God is all in. He's fully invested in your salvation, in your eternal significance. And He beckons us to likewise be all in too. Okay? He beckons us to a life that is all in even though we live in a faithless place and might experience pushback. And so as we meditate upon this, instead of upon our fears that plague us, we will, I think, break out in praise just like Peter and Paul did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, <clears throat> these great truths that are here. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would captivate us with these truths. That um, somehow some of my enthusiasm would be transferred. Some of Peter's enthusiasm would be transferred to all of us by the power of the Spirit so that we do have the peace of God which transcends all understanding, which guards our hearts and minds because we deal in difficult times. We all struggle with uh, fears and doubts, our guilt and everything else. We feel oppression from the outside as well as temptation from the inside. So keep bringing these things back to our minds so that we will indeed be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who has gone before us as the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.